0: And welcome to Interlude Women's Cancer Stories with Dr. Japlinski. I am a medical oncologist and I specialize in treating women with breast and gynecologic cancer. I started this podcast to share the journeys and experiences of women who are living with cancer. Every week, I bring you stories of incredible women who are all at different stages of their cancer journey. We will talk about anything and everything related to the cancer experience. These women will share with you how cancer has affected them and how they are living life despite that. The information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as any medical advice as each patient has a different treatment and experience. It is meant to create a dialogue. Any personal medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Cancer brings normal life to a halt. It creates an interlude. Let's talk about it. Today, my guest is Ingrid Colstow. Ingrid is a 41-year-old mother of three girls who was just recently diagnosed with a rare form of ovarian cancer. We talk about how she feels about being diagnosed with a rare cancer at such a young age, the importance of genetic testing, and the effect that this diagnosis has had on her family. Welcome, Ingrid. I'm so excited to have you here today. Can you start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about who you are?
1: well my name is um ingrid colstow and i am a typical american woman with an awesome or i guess i had an awesome job in education i um was an educator for around 15 years and then i had worked for the federal government after that in the office for civil rights and the um u.s department of education At that time, I was pregnant with twins and had an interesting past with my twins. I got something very rare called mirror syndrome, and my babies were born at 26 weeks. So at their birth, they were in the hospital in the NICU for around four months, and at that time, one of my daughters got a brain injury from having sepsis. So she has cerebral palsy. So we moved to Colorado um, for the children's hospital to, and for me to be able to take care of her. So I've been home with my oldest daughter and my twin daughters for five years and went back into the classrooms because it matches their schedule. And then um, in December, um, was deadlifting 200 pounds and I tore my lower ab and went to the hospital and they said to the doctor and they said, Yes, you have indeed tore your ab, but you also have a stage four rare cancer. So that's who I am and that's where I'm at today.
0: Wow, that's quite the story. So, how old are your girls right now? They are six years
1: old. They just turned six. And then I additionally have an older daughter who is um, eight years old who will turn nine on Sunday. Happy birthday to her. Thank you.
0: You went to the hospital thinking you had a muscle injury. What was your first reaction when they told you that they suspected it was cancer? Uh,
1: I thought they were lying. I generally, (laughs) after having such a medical adversity pass with Elon, in my family, usually what is said first off is not necessarily what the outcome tends to be. With Elon, it was, she's got a brain injury, she's gonna be severely disabled, et cetera, et cetera. She does have a mild disability, or a moderate disability, so she's really uh, physical dependent, but as far as what they told us about their, like her brain and how she was gonna function, didn't turn out to be true. So hearing a diagnosis like that, what had ended up happening was I really didn't believe it. I still have a hard time believing it because I don't have any symptoms. And so it is called low-grade serous ovarian cancer. So I kind of at first was like, no, I doubt it. That is probably really not true. So met with a gynecologist and we decided, well, let's go in and do some exploratory Um look and see. And what they found on the CT scan was a grapefruit sized cyst. And the whole time my gynecologist was like, this is most likely benign. This happens. You don't have any symptoms. Let's do some tumor marker tests. Tumor marker tests came back. Nothing. No raised, elevated, anything. All right, that's good news. Let's go in and we're just going to do a hysterectomy. We're going to get rid of all of this, get, look, get rid of this cyst, and you'll be on your way. Elevated it up to gynecology oncologist because my grandmother died of ovarian cancer at 47. Wow. So we thought we'll just jump up and this seems like this could be kind of weird. She thought the same thing. On the CT scan, it says I have cancer everywhere. Carcinomatosis, abdominal, peritoneal, omentum, everything. And she's sitting across the table looking at me like, I bet that is really not the case. So we're just going to go in. When she got in there, it was supposed to be a two-hour laparoscopic removal of the cyst. And a look around, and it became a, oh, shoot. She really does have cancer everywhere. And so I wasn't able to be optimally debulked and that turned into a six and a half hour, 12 inch surgery on my abdomen that I still don't have any symptoms for. After she came back and said, you have, we need to see the pathology, but it's a borderline tumor of some type came back and was said, Actually, this is a stage for exceedingly rare cancer that less than a 1,000 people a year get. Your survival rate, first thing that pops out of the mouth, your survival rate is probably four to seven years. And I'm still like, I doubt it. So blood tests again, doing all those blood tests, still nothing has come back. And even this week, because... Um, I am going to start chemotherapy, even though this is a chemo-resistant cancer. My significant other had a physical, and my blood tests are better than him. When was the surgery? So I had surgery on December
0: 20th. I got my initial diagnosis on January 3rd. And what did you do after you got that pathology back? Did you go see a medical oncologist so my uncle is one of uh,
1: is a specialist at the National Cancer Institute, and the, and a specialist at the National Institute of Health. He's been studying cancer for a long time. Um, their recommendation, of course, along the lines is you don't do anything until you get a tumor test. There may be some targeted therapies, and to be totally honest, he had not. Really, he does not know much about this cancer. There is not a lot of people that do. Even the researchers in NIH are going off of journals and um, speaking to people at places like MD Anderson for what do we do with these types of things. But there is no cutting edge science here, uh, which is a little bit disappointing on a lot of levels. But I got my DNA tumor test. Unfortunately, and I'm a huge proponent of genetics, I don't actually think anybody should really do anything without genetic testing these days. Um, the DNA tumor test, although it came back with there are no mutations that we can prey on, this is where my learning curve kind of started to, to take off. You're going to hear words when you get these diagnosis like frontline therapy second-line therapy, third-line therapy. And most of us who are not doctors don't really have an understanding of what that even means. So my DNA tumor tests from Foundation One came back that I do not have any mutations that they are able to identify as something we can target. But they also included about six other things that they found in the tumor that they have questions about. And those are, the, those are the things in my cancer that I am interested in targeting. The frontline therapy, the recommendation is carbotaxel chemotherapy, six cycles or once a week for 18 weeks, followed up with letrozole which is pretty common in estrogen-positive, receptor-positive cancers. That is the frontline therapy. They know mostly that that really doesn't work. All it does is hold the disease stable. But in my case, they found a KRAS mutation that they're not sure about. They additionally found an androgen receptor mutation, which there are some medications that target prostate cancer for those. But I can't access those medications until I do a frontline.
0: What was it like finding out that not only did you have cancer at such a young age, that you also have this incredibly rare cancer that most people don't know much about?
1: I think that how I feel about it is there are dark tunnels that people can go in. And if I choose to focus on thinking I'm going to die or I'm not going to see my, I'm going to be dead and my girls are only going to be 10 or 11. That's, that's not quite acceptable to me at this time. So my focus is, and this is where I hope the conversation in cancer will change is that instead of looking at cancer, like you're either going to die or you're a fighter, which are words you hear all the time, and you're going to win and survive that i'm looking at this is this is going to be a chronic disease much like diabetes that i have to manage for as long as i can i want to die of something else <laughs> so it's it but this is you can't fight this so sometimes when you're searching for answers and the answer is no answer that's the answer <laughs> and that's hard And I don't like it because I want an answer.
0: I agree. We all want answers. And it's hard, I think, for both the doctor and the patient to kind of sit there together and say, I don't really think what I'm going to give you is the best treatment, but I don't have a better treatment. And that's very frustrating for everyone. You mentioned that you, you know, the words fighter and you're going to survive this. There's a lot of controversy about using those words when talking to patients who are living with cancer. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I want the cancers where that is possible to continue that dialogue, because if that is what propels people into feeling like this is something that they can cope with, then those are really powerful words to them. But I don't think that people quite understand that there are so many cancers out there And some of them, you can't fight. And so using a word like fighting, when what I need to do is find a way to maintain it, isn't a healthy dialogue for me. It can be very sad, a very sad dialogue, especially when part of me just wants to see how long I could survive without doing anything. Because I know that those agents that they're giving me are toxic. And then I don't feel like a fighter. I feel like a quitter when I'm deciding those thoughts in my head. And that's not really a fair dialogue either. So just because I might decide not to take a treatment doesn't mean I'm not fighting the cancer. It means that I am, I am in, inviting, not fighting, inviting the cancer into my life the
0: way that
1: I can tolerate it.
0: I like that. I like that way of thinking about it you mentioned that you went to the nih for that rare tumor initiative can you talk a little bit more about that
1: so the nih is trying to basically genomically sequence all cancers that they possibly can in the rare tumor initiative they're trying to find outlying cancers to see what are the genetics of these? Do they have, are they related to something else? Is there a connection? Or is this something that is a complete dice roll? And in the Rare Cancer Initiative, it's much like the human genome where they're trying to get all of everybody's DNA, they're also trying to do that within cancer. And rare tumors though are starting to pop up Pretty readily and they don't they're like, Oh my gosh, do we have more cancer that we just didn't know about? Or are these branch cancers? And so the Rare Cancer Inu- Initiative is seeking to answer those questions and then just genomically sequence all these rarities. So like for me, they said there was a possibility they may get five people okay. who have low grade serous Or country. correct. Wow. Um, And and they want to know about it. Where did it start? What did it do? And so they're basically developing, I guess, in the easiest sense, an encyclopedia of cancer that is going to give them, hopefully, lots of information and that in the future, my daughters, for example, um, they may have access to medication because of this genomic sequence that they wouldn't have before. And the NIH is a research hospital, so that's where they would do that.
0: I think that's wonderful. I think it creates, hopefully, a huge database so that in 20, 30, 50 years, that what's a rare tumor today is is either going to be eradicated, which we all hope, but at least it won't be a rare tumor. At least we'll know more about it and we can treat it appropriately.
1: You know, there's a lot of people that don't really even know or realize that there are places around the United States where dinosaurs had cancer. And they're genomically sequencing the tumors of dinosaurs to find out what were their cancers. Because we think that cancer is something that is um, just all of a sudden popping up. But it actually hasn't. Every being has the potential to have cells go awry in some way. The question they're trying to answer
0: is how and why. And that's hard. It's huge. Hopefully we'll get some answers. Did you go for, besides the genetic testing that was done at the NIH, did you go for the BRCA gene testing? Absolutely.
1: And one of the main reasons is that I can't believe I was so stupid. I feel stupid. And that's probably a residual effect of getting a cancer diagnosis, that I didn't do it myself. After I have a grandmother who died of ovarian cancer and a grandfather who had colon cancer, those are two very, those cancers show up in t- tons of people. But for my daughters, this is, this is what I want to know. Do we have a gene that would predispose them to cancer? Can you imagine? This, this is the path that they can take. If they have that gene, they can say, I'm going to have a hysterectomy. I'm getting rid of all of this. I'm not even going to deal with it. That's one option. A second option is. I am going to have a hysterectomy. I'm going to do this, but you're going to harvest my eggs first. And there are people who can delete the gene from their children. (laughs) Then they could have a surrogate. They could move forward and have a family. They could decide to take a dice roll. I I don't think I'm going to get it. And so I'm just going to have my own children naturally and see what happens, cross that path. But without that knowledge, I, I think it would be, surely unfair to them to live like this although some people don't want to know and that's perfectly fine for
0: them too I think that it's a individual decision for each person I think it has to be made while having all that information so knowing what your options are knowing the implications of the testing whether it be positive or negative then you're armed with all of that then you make that decision that's right for you I mean, the testing could come
1: back and say that there is absolutely no reason to believe that this cancer is genetic. It seems a little bit strange that I would have a grandmother who died at my age of ovarian cancer and was chemo-resistant, so the chemotherapy didn't work for her in the 60s. That seems like that would be kind of a stretch not to think that there would be a genetic germline there. Um, I don't believe that my daughters should really actually even procreate with anybody unless they each have had genetic testing. And I think that the dialogue surrounding, you know, should I know what my outcome is going to be, should be as simple as getting a vaccination. I'm going to prevent myself from getting the flu because I know that it's detrimental to me. I don't have to get the shot. I can take a chance, but we do know that the flu will make you sick if you get it. So any information that my family can have on their genetics is power to me.
0: I agree. Information is its power. It it arms you and makes, helps you make better decisions and better choices that are right for you. So you mentioned you're starting chemotherapy soon. Indeed. <laughs> what are you thinking as you go into it? Um... So I,
1: I think I can come across as a person who seems pretty confident and strong, um, and I am. I'm a Viking. That is the truth. I'm a Viking or I'm a pirate, one of the two. But I know what this, this chemotherapy is going to do to me, and I don't like it. I don't feel sick, so I know that I'm essentially jumping into fire, with the hopes that something might happen. Um, This is, I never really, it's kind of a group of people that I never really wanted to be a part of unless I was the doctor. That's fair. And so walking in there, even now I was in the infusion center and traditionally with the cancer that I have, it's mostly older people. And so... I kind of looked around, and I'm just thinking to myself, this is not actually where I feel like I really belong. Um, I do, however, believe that there are lessons, and to walk in there as if I'm not part of that group would would be a disappointment to myself, because I'm going to learn something. So, so far, what I've learned is that um, their, their big question or their big concern is, they keep asking, so how are you going to feel about losing your hair? Because a lot of people feel that's like they don't do chemo because that is just the biggest thing to them. I really don't care. I mean, my, my daughter has a very visual disability, and if I were to sit there and cry over something like that, I don't know what kind of mixed message that would be sending her about how she looks. Again, it's not something that I want and I feel sad about it. I got this chemo port put in the other day and I swear it hurts worse than my abdominal surgery did.
0: A lot of people
1: say that actually. I'm like, why is this what is taking me down when I have a 12 inch scar? (laughs) That should have brought me to my knees, (laughs) but it's in the chest (laughs) that's killing me. And then I kind of laughed about it and thought to myself, of course it's hurting you. It's the closest thing to your heart. It's the thing that that you're avoiding even talking to.
0: Thank you for sharing that, for being so open, so honest, so vulnerable. Your words will help so many women.
1: Well, I appreciate that.
0: What are your thoughts going into chemotherapy?
1: Um, I, I, I think that... I would be able to tolerate my chemotherapy and this cancer more if I was able to do it at the children's hospital with the other kids who had cancer because they have a particular type of strength Mm -hmm. that most of us don't have because honestly, small children, they just don't have a vision of the future. They only know what I can do right now. So, and when you have cancer, people still require you to think about the future when honestly you like revert back to a six-year-old where you're like, all I can do is right now. I don't even know. Right. And they don't care if they lose their hair. They take their pain medication and, and what they really want is somebody to carry them and give them a blanket and, you know, draw pictures with them. And, and honestly, when you're really sick or have chemotherapy, adults want that too They just are not really good at expressing that.
0: It's true. And you're also a mom to three girls. So that part of it doesn't stop whether or not you're getting chemotherapy or not.
1: And I have a partner who travels for his job just about every week. And I also have a child with a disability. So, and she can't get herself dressed and she can't take baths by herself. And, you know, homework still comes up. I think those are the things that, anger me more about it than anything else is, again, I don't have any symptoms. I don't feel sick. So knowing that I am not going to be at my optimal level for my girls, and to be totally truthful, I'm not quite a person who needs a lot of help all the time. And so getting help from people is, it's difficult for me, I feel like I'm failing, like, I should be able to get up and do this, right? So I don't I'm I, I mean the only thing I can draw on right now is like watching Viking movies where, you know, the Vikings getting stabbed in the chest and he somehow manages to pull out his sword and get the guy anyway.
0: Well, I think that's what chemotherapy <laughs> as a mom is like. I, like like,
1: okay, I am stabbed, but I'm somehow still gonna win this thing, right? So <laughs>
0: um it's uh what do you think it's, it's gonna look like? Are you have help lined up, or what's the plan i do
1: i i I want to think that I might be able to tolerate it better than what I think I'm going to. um I made the decision that probably working and trying to do all of this isn't gonna be a wise move. I need to make sure that in the day I can sleep and then I can pick my daughters up and you know function for at least two or two three hours in the afternoon and then rest. And so my whole goal right now is my chemo's once a week. I have a really fantastic medical oncologist who, he is not totally on sure. he is willing to do this to me. Like this almost feels unethical to him to harm someone <laughs> that is seemingly not, even though there's all this evidence of disease. Um, so he's like, I I will call the fight. He said, we're going to check you about halfway through. If this isn't doing anything, we're done. We're not turning back. I think having a doctor in your corner is making it more palatable. Um, I also think that my daughters, because we have a, a sister with disabilities, are used to a level of caregiving that some families are not. So we identified what everybody thought their strengths were going to be. One of my daughters said, I can get you water whenever you need it. You know, like they're, it's like their little leadership levels. And so if this is what you think you can do, then this is what we'll do. Right. I can get snacks made in the morning. I, I know how to order pizza online. That's my favorite one. I can order the pizza, you know, and like, um, I'll try to carry Elon downstairs for you if you're too tired. they, they really um, identify with what their leadership skill might be in this scenario, and I, I just have confidence that we'll be able to, to manage, did not in the best possible way, but to manage.
0: manage. Did you tell them that you were sick, or how did you explain it to them? Oh, no, absolutely, straight
1: away. I got cancer. I don't feel sick, so this is, looks really weird to you guys right now. But today, in fact, my I took my twin daughters who were six to the wig shop and they helped me pick out a new wig and they um, I'm getting my hair shaved on Wednesday into a style that I mean, I tell them prison changes people. So one of the things that you can do before you go to prison, if that's what you have to do is cut your haircut in the look. And so so off with the hair where I, I had read that it helps kids to see their mama's with a little shorter hair and then lose it. My sweet Amelia came to me and she's got a favorite blanket and it's got hearts all over it. And this just nearly broke me down, but she said I could take heart C to chemo with me and not be afraid that the hearts will fall off, but they will grow back.
0: That's incredibly insightful for a six year old. I'm like, baby, baby,
1: why did you say, you
0: know, stop talking to me.
1: So I think, um, I think they too see the cancer commercials and they are Disney primed and there is a great show on Disney, but about a girl who has cancer and she's bald on the show, but I don't think they have an understanding of how sick it actually makes you. And when they see that it's going to be a little bit of a different beast. Um, I was told at my daughter's school that there are around 17 kids whose parents are currently going through this right now, wow. so they've got a group that they're putting together so that these kids can, like, all talk about how they're feeling and what what's going on. Um, that makes me feel really good. I think our support system is the support system. I believe should less support me and more support my family on its goals because their goals can't stop. Their life goes on and fun. Don't feel, don't be afraid to have enjoyment. Even if I can't be there, you know, I think the things that surprised us the most that might make them feel a little bit weird is we're going to try to follow the idea that we should have our mama should have her own bathroom that she's toxic. Right. And so, um, hugging and kissing when you come home, we're going to make sure you got to wash your hands, you know, all these kinds of things that we take for granted that my daughter just ran inside. She gave me a kiss. I was like, you are a little Petri dish from school, but okay. <laughs> that I think those are the things. And then, and then I have a really good significant other who he, he will fully pick up, you know, his weight. And even more so he, He's got really thick shoulders. So, I don't have to worry that I have, you know, a derelict husband. Let me just say <laughs> no. Because I love him so much and and I feel that this is equally unfair to him that I could like dump him for the time and then come out of it and and be like, "Okay, I'm back. I'm like this new person. You don't deserve to have a sick wife." I don't want you to think of me in that way. I never wanted him to look at me like that. So I don't know. I guess it will just unfold in um, in ways that are. He's requested that I make sure that I tell him really how I feel, and if I'm really sick, to say I'm really sick and
0: not be afraid to say I I just can't do that. So I think it's important to be vulnerable. It's- important to allow yourself to be vulnerable
1: i i can remember when i was really little this one time i was really sick and this is something that i didn't know existed until now but when you get like a terminal diagnosis your brain all of a sudden goes back and it can remember things from when you were like two because it's like the like you're in a tunnel and all all of a sudden i got all of these memories that i had forgotten i think it's a trauma piece that the brain does But I can remember I was really sick. I think I had, like, the chicken pox or something, and it was right around the time that Nightmare on Elm Street came out and Freddy Krueger, and who wasn't afraid of him? I was, like, nine years old. No way. But I remember I was so sick, and I had to go to the basement, and I hated the basement. I got down there, and I always thought Freddy Krueger was, like, around the corner. But I laid down, and I was so sick, and I was so tired that I just thought, well, whatever, Freddy. If, like, I'm the one you're going to go for, then go for it. (laughs) And I wasn't afraid of him anymore because I had reached a threshold of, like, I, I can't go any further. So if Fred Krueger is right there, then Fred Krueger's is going to have to be right there. And I've really not ever forgotten that. I think it's the same idea now, too. I mean, I'm just going to have to lay down. And if Fred Krueger is going to be there, he's just going to be there. I don't I, I don't think I have really a choice and so I'm peaceful at, at that thought at least that I I don't have to worry about some other boogeyman that I'm not seeing yeah I think this is pretty boogeyman enough Ah, uh, yeah I mean I still wouldn't I I mean if I got hit by a
0: car tonight I would not be more surprised
1: <laughs>
0: you found the Facebook support group right for the woman with low-grade serious cancers yes yes and that's been interesting because all over the
1: world there are many, many women who have this and many, many women who are trying to figure out what do I do with it. The one thing I really I have found and it's one person who's on this Facebook page has said she's lived for 30 years with it. And so that is hopeful in itself, but the majority it's not like you get someday, everybody's wanting to know about a treatment, right? Like, how does this treatment make you feel? Whatever. I'm new. What do I do now? Kind of thing. Um, And then there are some who are like, this is my fifth treatment and nothing is changing or nothing is happening. Um, I have to admit, it's somewhat hard for me to read all of the time because one of the things that they really don't do is DNA testing on their tumors. And I think that we need everyone with this cancer to DNA test their tumor so we can see if there's something similar about all of us that we can treat. And so that part of it is interesting. And then what I also find interesting is there are some commonalities between those of us who have it, like, for example, hypothyroidism. My hypothyroidism is resolved now, though. It'd be good to know. Do you still have hypothyroidism? Or was that a precursor? Or, you know, many of them said that they had symptoms. Um, The ones who are surviving the best are the ones who had cytoreductive surgery where they took all of it. That is so true. And then sometimes they just need a little pep-up, right? People just need a little bit of somebody knowing what they're going through. It is It is interesting. It is very interesting to read, though. It really is. And they had mentioned you on there. Oh, thanks. That's how I got in contact yeah. with you. Star, you don't even know it.
0: <laughs> so I hear mixed things about the support group. Sometimes they're helpful and wonderful, and then other times they can be overwhelming, and sometimes it's too many answers to questions, and you're not exactly sure where to go or what to do with that information.
1: People think that some of the responses that they're giving are coming across helpful, when really in that particular moment it's not very helpful, right? You you should just be offering a hand of support. What I feel like though is I I I don't necessarily need all of the like hey teal sister ovarian teal sisters out there, um, but I'm a data person so. I wish I had like a group of us who were all researchers and we're researching this together, like as a little team and, you know, almost, it's almost out of body where it's not me who I'm researching. I'm researching this on behalf of all of these other women. One thing I will say that this cancer has already shown me that I didn't know before because I mean, I tell everybody I know because I want to know, do they know someone? It's so rare. What if I cross paths with somebody whose mom had it? High-grade ovarian cancer is actually pretty common, and you start to meet people along the way who are like, my mom died of this. I never for once thought that I was going to be a voice for the dead and a voice for the living. And so when I talk to a person who lost their mother to ovarian cancer, I now am speaking with their mother's voice and saying, your mom would be proud of you. Look at you. Or, I'm so sorry that science didn't meet your mom, but I want you to know that she's not lost because science did help and it's helping me. And you may not realize this, but your mother's death is also helping me stay alive. So you are a voice for the dead and a voice for the living at the same time. And that's very hard.
0: It's amazing to hear you put it like that. I really like that. You know, these Facebook groups or social media, there's a big push right now towards harnessing social media for research. And I think it speaks to exactly what you just said. So taking these women who are in groups and saying, hey, do you guys have any commonalities? And you start to pick up things like the thyroid. Is there something really there? Should we be looking at this? So social media is such a good opportunity to join like-minded people together who have similar diseases and study that. So I
1: read a journal um, that talked about low-grade serious cancer is pretty, pro-
0: pretty predominant
1: in Norway. I'm Norwegian. I am almost 80% Norwegian. So over there, their treatment status is a little bit different. They would have, They would do something that's just a little bit different, right? So I need that information because I want to be able to do what they do there, here, if that's possible. The other thing I wanted to do was I had gone on Ancestry and we did all of our genetic stuff. And so ancestry.com sends you like your links. This could be a third cousin or a fourth cousin. I literally want to take all of those people that they've linked me to send a mass email out and say, who else has low grade serous cancer? We are, we are genetically connected. I want to know who anyone was it high grade? Was it low grade? What happened? What was the trajectory? Because I would imagine as you move through it, you find pop-up cohorts that, that will teach, tell you something. And when something is very rare, you need that. You need, to, you need to, to see because I personally know that things are random in science, but not everything is random.
0: I think that raises a good question with the ancestry. So how many people did it come up in your network? Oh, it's connected me to, I would say, a couple hundred people. So it's interesting. Does it raise the responsibility of using, you know, I've been diagnosed with low-grade ovarian cancer, low-grade serious ovarian cancer. Do I have to tell these people who may be related to me, should they now go and get genetic testing?
1: Hey, I don't care what they do. I would just be interested in knowing we have a genetic line. Do you have anybody else on this line that has it? and it might not it might not even be a matter of is our we know our DNA is related because we're related on ancestry then the second tier question would be how deeply related are we did you carry the gene and the gene never came to fruition this is another thing that husbands and dads and sons and fathers need to know you are not eliminated from BRCA genes and so, or germline gene Just because, and so like in my family, everybody has girls. There are no boys. And so what that would mean is that our father, my dad, is the genetic line because on my mom's side, there's nothing there, right? My brother has a responsibility just because he happens to be male and holds testicles is doesn't mean that he has not passed something on to his daughters. I don't necessarily know that all the men kind of get that yet, that they're part
0: of it too. It's commonly thought of as the breast and ovarian cancer gene, but it's so much more than that. It increases your risk for other cancers, melanoma, pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer, and it affects men just as much. We don't talk about that, but we should.
1: Yeah, you should. I mean, I I think, you know, your genetics are... A neat book about you. <laughs> it's really neat, and you can get great, great jeans just like you get, you know, maybe crappy jeans. So, I, uh, I, I would like to get on Ancestry and just send out that mass email that is like hello to my Norwegian friends, cousins.
0: <laughs> <You never laughs> Anyone know. else? so I want to end with just asking you a few questions about kind of how this experience has been like for you so what has been your kind of pet peeve so to speak as you go through this Uh, my pet peeve is that
1: I was really actually putting a lot of hope into precision medicine and so far that hasn't really rolled out for me On the other hand, I have a couple of interesting things. I am androgen receptor positive. I also have a CD4K mutation that might be available to me. So I think that one of the pet peeves I have is that you can see it, but it's not there yet. So it's there. I just have to hold on. I just, you can see it and it's not there. Um, Another thing I think is a pet peeve to me is, having to rely on the medical professionals to give me the answers that i'm looking for when sometimes you know you want that answer right now <laughs> i'm it's friday night i need an answer right and it's not fair to to put that sort of pressure on a doctor i wish i could just know it myself or get online and and i definitely have a google doctorate degree so don't worry about it i i am Solid. That somebody could come to me and I could tell them, well, here's what Google says. So it's one of these three things. Um, And I think the other thing that is absolutely horrible and a pet peeve to me is when my mind goes to I'm going to be dead. How do you come out of that? I say to myself, you're not dead right now. And that is not a good, that is a stone you're throwing at yourself and don't do it. You'll know when you're dead. So, but But it's changing the relationship between my significant other and I, right? Because assume that I do die in the four years or five years or six years. We will need to, things that we think are important, sell our house. He's going to be a single dad of three daughters. He needs to be able to financially take care of all three of them, have a daughter with special needs. He might need to have additional help in the home. And then... The part that I never have been, which is jealous, is thinking he could have another relationship with someone, and I really want him to have that. But, so we just had one rule, is you just can't call her mama. <laughs> no matter what, I don't care how much you love her, no, that name is reserved, it's retired.
0: There is only one mama.
1: There is just one mama, and you are looking at her, and so whatever happens, um, I think the butterfly effect, which is I'm not really afraid to die. I just don't want a tsunami being created out of the death. And that is a real egotistical thing to think that I really have that much clout in life. So I know my daughters would move on and they will be beautiful. And I'm extremely jealous of all healthy people right now. Also not a, it's a pet peeve that I even feel that way. Um, And then, like, I went to Target, and I was fine, and then I was buying shampoo, and that's what set me into tears? That's ridiculous. Snap out of it. But that's what set me into tears.
0: Is it hard to look at people on social media who are posting their happy pictures, and you're thinking, I have to start chemotherapy now?
1: So, I don't have Facebook. I only, I have it anonymously. Most people probably wouldn't even know that it was me. I think that the majority of what you see on Facebook is a lie anyway. So people just put their best stuff out there and, and that's that. Um, I also think that there is an emotional currency tied to trauma. And so in some respects, people put their stuff on there because they're soliciting like that good feeling that they're going to get by people liking their posts or whatever. I take it back to um, when people used to die, they used to take their photo at death. And nobody does that anymore, right? Because it's you don't want to see that. Um, so I think Facebook is a little bit hidden. I think where I get really frustrated is, like, I start chemotherapy on Thursday. I think I'm supposed to be sick on a couple days later because the steroids wear off. And I'm supposed to be doing special needs skiing with my daughter. And I'm like, I'm the healthiest one out of all of you guys, but I'm apparently also the sickest. And so I'm very angered by that or, and then trying to kind of keep that cool. I'm also, I, it's really hard when like you're getting emails that you're supposed to have family reunions in the next six months. And I can literally only see the next two weeks. Like when I'm usually the person who's the party person, I will say this cancer does fit my personality though. Because I have always been the person who's been like, you can come to the party, just don't be rowdy. And <laughs> so apparently that's how this cancer has manifested too. It's at the party, just not leaving, and it's not being rowdy. So what do you do with it? I'd like tell it it can spend the night. So you yeah, yeah. know, um, yeah, those are those are hard things, and I. I'm not going to lie, I kind of I burst into tears and then I don't and or I'll see somebody who is obviously unhealthy and they're not dying or they're not, you know, and that is just an existential, and you don't know, you, Aaron said, that's my significant other, he's like, how many people are walking down the street with something and have no idea? You look good and you're, you don't look sick, so no one knows. Nobody knows and, um, yeah, so I, I do, I I like intermittently cry. I think every morning I I wake up and I allow myself, I set my Surrey timer for five minutes and I can only cry for five minutes. And then I have to get up. Because there's more important. And it's every day. I mean, I literally haven't had a day that I didn't wake up and do that. But I know the shower's coming. The kids are going to start yelling at me in a minute. I got to make French toast sticks. So I remember my kids at Christmas were like really sorry mom that you're having surgery but is Santa still coming so there is a degree of straight priority around here that I I just can't I'm not allowed to cry.
0: French toast sticks are you know they're critical so one last question you're just kind of starting this process but you're further along than others if you could give one piece of advice to someone who is just starting out who just found out what would you say? depending on the type of, actually, I, I say for all of them, you get your DNA tested. You start right
1: there and you don't look back. And if you don't have a doctor who's willing to do it, then you find a new oncologist. However, there are some cancers that are highly curable and they may reoccur. They may not, but still DNA tests the tumor. Do it yourself. Foundation one I filled out the financial aid application, not thinking that they would really approve it, and they paid one hundred percent for it
0: yeah, they're a great organization
1: I think um, I think cancer centers are really positive but like I have Kaiser insurance I can't go to any cancer cancer centers I don't think that's fair so if you do happen to get cancer um, I think that it can benefit you to try a different insurance i I hate to say that because I'm getting the best care that I can possibly get, but I have very limited options in that way. And I don't think that's fair. Um, And then the last thing I think with it is that cancer can be a chronic illness. It doesn't, it can be something that can be managed over a long period of time. And it's not an either here nor there. Some of us are going to have, we're never going to stop our treatments. And it's going to keep us going. You wouldn't ask a person with diabetes, so are you done with your treatment yet? And how are you feeling? It doesn't end for them. They test their insulin. They have to do it. Um, I've lost friends already over the diagnosis or they just stop talking. You know, they don't know what to say and those kinds of things. Don't feel sad about that. They are dealing and ailing for you. They just can't say it to you. And that for me, this is just going to go on for a long period of time. So this is just the beginning of the game. And for everyone, you get that diagnosis, it's just the beginning. There's a lot of science out there that is really going to be on your side. But you've got to have the information.
0: I wish you so much luck as you start.
1: Thank you. And I wish you luck continuing to treat awesome women.
0: Thank you for listening to my conversation with Ingrid. It was raw and honest and absolutely incredible to hear her story and how she's coping and living with this diagnosis. I cannot wait to share more powerful stories with you over the coming weeks and months. If you liked today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. You can head on over to my Instagram and Twitter page at Dr. Japlinski for more podcast information as well as the latest cancer news and research. Finally, if you or anyone you know are interested in being a guest on the show, please email me at interludecancerstories at gmail.com.